Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 33, Masonry. This is Part 4 in the final part of Masonry. Um, So we're going to talk about remediation methods. So as the effects of decay mechanisms become known, preserving the remaining historic fabric with perhaps only nominal repairs may be possible. The primary precaution mentioned in regard to wood stabilization and conservation is applicable here. Remove the source of the decay even when no other work is deemed necessary. Compared to wood conservation, stone conservation is more problematic. The stripping, cleaning, and coating systems used early in the preservation movement of the mid-20th century demonstrated how complex and fragile masonry systems were, and that these early methods were detrimental to the long run. The physical and chemical properties of materials used to make a repair need to be carefully considered. The mixed results of seemingly simple procedures like repointing mortar, cleaning, and repairing either surface or structural defects continue to demonstrate the need for a thermal expansion, chemical interactions, visual integrity, and a host of other factors must be weighed when selecting a treatment. The characteristics must be assessed in terms of how they relate to the corresponding properties of the masonry they are intended to conserve in the first place. An extremely common example is the devastating impact of one simple mistake, replacing lime sand mortars with Portland cement mortars. Very simple. Stabilization refers to protecting the physical integrity of the item and involves remediation by using temporary measures that may later be removed as part of the final treatment. Temporary measures may be prudent while evaluating long-term treatments. These measures include protecting decayed masonry from further damage by covering it with tarpaulins or installing lateral supports and bracing, removing unnecessary loads from within the building itself, and making nominal repairs to flashing and openings in masonry joints. As in any cleaning project, it is necessary to identify the goals. A thorough investigation must answer the following questions. Is cleaning needed for the aesthetic or removal processes? Number two, what caused the soiling or paint conditions that currently exist? Number three, what previous cleaning efforts have been made? Number four, what previous coatings and other treatments have been applied? Number five, how is the masonry reacting to the soiling or previous treatments? Number six, how should build-up crust if present be treated? Number seven, what should the cleaning process remove? Number eight, what are the appropriate cleaning processes for the building? Number nine, what, if any, are the historically appropriate paint coatings? So based on lessons learned from the use of earlier, more destructive methods. The object is to remove soiling by the gentlest means possible, sympathetically. Processes are now available to conduct cleaning projects that satisfy this requirement. In certain instances, when crusts have formed, the best treatment may be to leave them in place as not to destroy the details of the element being cleaned. Practices for cleaning 
soiled surfaces include soaking, low-pressure water systems, and they may also include non-ionic detergents, steam or hot water cleaning methodologies, and in certain cases, chemical washes. The critical factors in using these approaches include the physical stability of the existing material, the presence or absence of crust, and the chemical composition of cleaning agents and how they react with the masonry and any adjunct, adjunct mortar being cleaned. For example, an acidic cleaning product should not be used on limestone or lime sand mortar mix since these materials are quite sensitive to acid. While granite, limestone, sandstone, and Portland cement base mortars are not. Correspondingly, some masonry products may be active to alkaline-based cleansers. Practices and, and products for removing paint include a range of chemical cleaners and strippers. Two types are most commonly available. The first includes alkaline strippers that use potassium, ammonium hydroxide, and trisodium phosphates as a basic ingredient. A second type includes organic solvents that use methylene products and methylene chloride, methanol, acetone, xylene, and toluene. These are very heavy, so must, you must have mass on for these. There is also a number of other products specifically formulated to remove such things as graffiti, stains, um, metallic or biological origin. Good practice dictates using small test areas to determine the effectiveness of products before initiating the overall project. In any cleaning or stripping project, the product is applied using an applicator spray, a natural brush, bristle brush, or <clears throat> um, if the product is left in place for a period of time, referred to as the dwell time, so this is putting the, uh, putting the chemical on and letting it sit there, called the dwell time, and then removed. Some processes use plastic or chemical resistant sheets to cover the exposed product and make penetration of the chemical into soiled or painted areas more effective. When the recommended dwell time is reached, the product is removed and the surface is washed with water or a neutralizing agent. If need be, a stiff natural, natural brush may be used. Metal brushes are to be avoided as they may scratch terracotta glazes or break off and become embedded in the masonry, causing later discoloration as they corrode. Likewise, nylon brushes may react with the chemicals involved and leave a residue that will need to be removed. Once the test area dries, the effectiveness is assessed and the process is repeated until satisfactory results are obtained. A negative aspect of the application process and the rinsing neutralization process is that they can introduce water and sometimes certain salts into the masonry. Care must be taken to note open joints and observe the effects of the process to ensure the effervescent salts or chemical films do not result. Overly aggressive cleaning methods have generally been eliminated as appropriate for any historic building. While the prohibition largely involves sandblasting, grinding, and other mechanical removal methods, some leeway has been accorded through recent methods such as microabrasion techniques first developed in museum curatorial processes. These techniques 
make the use of micro balloons, finely ground walnut shells, glass powder, sponges, rubber pellets, and a wide variety of other materials. Although these techniques have been used with success on materials such as metals, they are still not considered appropriate for masonry. Concerns about the environmental impact of phosphates discharged into aquatic habitats and off-gassing of volatile organic compounds is part fostered by the LEAD program. <clears throat> and this has been led to the reformulation and introduction to a number of cleaning and stripping products that reduce the use of these compounds. In using any cleaner or stripper, local health and safety regulations must be confirmed and observed. All products and processes have specific safety precautions regarding res respiratory, eye, and skin protection while they are being used or stored on site. Likewise, environmental safety laws must be followed for both on-site collection and off-site disposal of these, these byproducts which are generated by cleaning and stripping. The long-term damage from inappropriate coatings on historic masonry has led to the development of better coating products. There has been an ongoing debate on whether applying any coating to historic masonry, masonry is, is appropriate. Waterproof coatings prevent any form of moisture, either vapor or liquor, liquid, from entering the coated material, while water repellent coatings allow the water vapor to migrate into and out of the material. The National Park Service has two observations regarding these coatings. Water repellent coatings are not necessary on the water tight buildings and waterproof coatings should not be applied to historic masonry. At the center of the debate is the recognition of differences between water repellent and waterproof coatings. The critical factor is that the coating must be vapor permeable to allow moisture vapor within the masonry to escape. While this characteristic may seem to run counter to the intent of keeping moisture out of the wall assembly, Vapor permeable coatings do prevent liquid moisture from entering the material. The key difference is that the vapor permeable or breathable coatings do allow moisture inside the material to escape. If water vapor cannot escape, the material containing it may succumb to the ravages of freeze-thaw cycles or the moisture may migrate to the interior of the buildings and damage interior finishes. Breathable coatings have been developed that are vapor permeable and allow migration of water vapor. These coatings have been formulated using a variety of water-based solutions containing modified siloxins, salines, acosiloxins, or modified metallic serrates, and have largely replaced the acrylic or silicone resins once used in the organic solvent-based formulations of the earlier generations in the chemical industry. These coatings must be period periodically reapplied. Waterproof coatings used in modern construction do not allow any water to pass through them. For new construction, measures can be incorporated into the design to eliminate moisture migration from the ground and interior spaces, thus making waterproof coatings viable. For historic construction where moisture control measures may have been compromised or may never have existed, these coatings neither solve the problem nor allow moisture to exit the assembly in a predictable manner unless all other moisture sources are controlled as well. For example, in the case of rising damp, 
applying waterproof coatings without controlling all paths of moisture migration may force the damp to rise higher than even before the coatings were applied. Waterproofing below grade surfaces, such as basement walls and foundation assemblies, should only be done as a last resort when other damage or drainage and damp proofing measures are unavailable, unfeasible, or ineffective. To offset problems in selecting coatings, it is necessary to assess the potential effects of the appearance and performance of the coating itself. While a series of test sections can be used to assess how the coatings penetrate the surface and how shining the resultant surface appears, these sections are largely ineffective in determining moisture control performance unless the entire assembly of the test sections are on or have been made watertight. For example, repointed mortar, repaired flashing. The true moisture behavior will still be affected by uncontrolled moisture entering through adjacent non-watertight openings. Consolidant and epoxy use, use follow applications processes similar to those for treating deteriorated wood. Consolidants penetrate into small voids in the material being treated. They then cure to stabilize the weakened material. Unfortunately, many consolidants have proven ineffective in many masonry products like brick, adobe, terracotta, and cast stone, as they seal in moisture and may not bond well, and may discolor the original material. Consolidants can sometimes be used in stone repairs before an epoxy treatment that has been used to fill larger voids created by the decay mechanism. These treatments bind the existing decay material into a more stable condition and therefore they are still reversible. When damage is extensive, it may be necessary to repair or replace damaged materials. In repairing the structural member, it is crucial to consider the visual and structural aspects of the replacement materials. Certain methods conceal repairs from public view, while others are much more obvious. Selecting the appropriate methods involves balancing the acceptable level of visual intrusion with the need for health and life and safety. The selection must also be tempered by the economic feasibility of competing or completing such repairs. Plastic repairs. In early re repaired attempts, one strategy used various mortar mixes applied to damaged masonry. These are called plastic repairs. Since mortar was applied while in its pliable or plastic state and then fashioned to the contour of the original surface. When mortar was compatible with the existing historic materials, this was a plausible repair. Unfortunately, many early repairs did not account for strength, flexibility, and permeability characteristics. This incompatibility was common in adobe repairs and in reporting sand lime mortar joints. Why in the short term, these repairs seemed appropriate. Long-term stresses and ensuing damage to the historic material revealed that they did more harm than good. Because of incompatibility between the repair materials and original materials, original materials began to deteriorate. The use of plastic repairs should be sensitive to the physical characteristics mentioned previously and to other factors, such as color, texture, reversibility, and long-term durability. The material being repaired is an important consideration as well. Broken terracotta, for example, 
may prove difficult to match color and appearance in piecemeal repairs. Instead, it may be feasible to replace broken elements with recast replacements. The most misunderstood plastic repair is repointing. To the inexperienced, repointing appears to be a simple insertion of mortar into a degraded joint, with little regard to how compatible the color, strength, or permeability of the new mortar is with the existing mortar and masonry. Until 1871, the introduction of Portland cement-based mortars, previous mortars used a sand-lime mixture that allowed masonry to expand and contract with thermal and moisture conditions present. Incompatible replacement mortars cause stresses within masonry and eventually hasten decay. In, ad in addition to physical properties, visual properties need to be constructed. Laboratory analysis can determine the size, color, and proportion of the aggregate used in this historic mortar. Colorants can match the color if the original or compatible source of the aggregate cannot be located. Lastly, is the need to understand the process of repointing. Due to weathering, both the masonry and existing mortar may have deteriorated. Loose mortar must be removed and replacement mortar inserted into the open joint. Two precautions exist here. First, the original profile of the mortar joint must be identified and repointed as exactly as possible. The profile should include a drip edge or means to prevent water from resting along the joint. Second, the edges of the masonry may have eroded to form a wider joint. Repointing must take this into account and provide visual continuity based on the width and other adjacent original joints. The repointing mortar should be simply slathered onto the opening to create a flush profile. This is, a com this is a common mistake of an inexperienced worker. At last, a Dutchman. A Dutchman can provide a continuous surface on the exposed face of masonry. It may be possible to remove the damaged portions of masonry and infill the cleared void with a patch made of compatible material. Compatibility refers to strength, size, permeability, and appearance. When a compatible unit is not available, other masonry units may be removed from the existing construction. Cut parallel to the exposed face, the positions in the void spaces. The remaining void behind the now thinner unit can now be filled with mortar. A Dutchman can also conceal an epoxy repair or any other internal structure reinforcement treatments. In the case of terracotta, consideration should be given to replacing the entire piece rather than compromise its visual appearance and moisture resistance. A Dutchman can be dressed and worked to provide a continuous surface on an ornamental surface as well. A masonry Dutchman is usually attached by either bedding it in a compatible mortar or using an epoxy or adhesive resin or drilling into the material beneath the damaged portion and inserting a combination of rods and epoxy filler to help secure them. So using structural reinforcement processes similar to those used for wood structures, limited opportunities may arise to repair and reinforce existing defective construction in place. However, structural reinforcement generally means dismantling the masonry assembly to assess the internal damage of the assembly, tie rods and anchors. In a load-bearing system, loads from above must be isolated from the area under repair using temporary support systems, for example, needle beams or temporary bracing.
to relieve weight from the bearing surfaces of the dwelling. Once loads are stabilized, damaged areas beneath the supports may be repaired or rebuilt. A common problem can be corrected this way, which is the repair of the lintels over openings. Many lintels installed prior to the use of stainless steel, aluminum, or other non-ferrous metals were constructed from wood or ferrous material shingle sh uh, self <coughs> shelf angles and have since rotted or corroded away. These deteriorated elements can cause masonry above the lintel to fail. Prior repairs for this condition can be seen where mortar and joints opened up by the settling and has been repointed one or more times without correcting the failed lintel. So let's finish up today with masonry systems are not made to be easily dismantled, moved, rebuilt, or readily replicated. This fact raises the question of how to find compatible materials. Research may identify original manufacturers of brick and terracotta or local stone quarries, but that does not mean that these products are still available, unless maybe some through salvage. But the lack of availability can force the use of available materials, replication of missing or deteriorated features in the original historic materials, or the use of appropriate alternative modern materials. Since finding suitable replacements has been proven difficult, replacement products have been developed. Some can be used structurally or ornamentally, while others are for ornament only. In closing, although each product is well suited for specific application, local, state, and federal guidelines, the ordinances governing historic properties may preclude their use. Therefore, consult with the relevant review agencies and manufacturers to verify, verify appropriateness. In making a final decision on appropriateness, the compatibility criteria should be met. Other criteria to consider include weather resistance, color fading, ultraviolet resistance, modeling ability, paint and coating adherence, rigidity, expansion coefficients, fire rating, specific connection requirements, and reversibility. That finishes up on all four episodes of uh, Masonary. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.